Tone Benders, the Sound Designers Podcast. Here are your hosts, Timothy and Renee. Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, it's Timothy Muirhead. Hey, Tim. Kind of a long time, no talk. Yeah, it's been a crazy uh, last couple of months. But we're, we're back together. It's all, it's all continuing to roll down the road, which is very exciting to me. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. I am at Renee underscore Coronado. Tim is at Azimuth Audio. And Tim, you got a kind of a special episode that was your brainchild today. So tell us about what we're about to do here. This is our 50th episode. I kind of wanted to do something for that. We were trying to decide if we should wait till it's our five-year anniversary, which will be like a year from now, or if we should do it for the 50th episode. I'm kind of between projects right now. So I had a bit of time, so I reached out to a couple people to sponsor this, sent out stuff on Twitter and Facebook, asking everybody that listens if they have a moment to record a story of their kind of favorite day on the job, the day that they did something with sound that really contributed to a project, really kind of changed the project or that made the director super happy, or some day when they just went home and when they were driving home or on the subway that they were smiling and nodding to themselves thinking, yeah, I nailed it today. And the kind of the thing I was thinking of to do this for was this is a job that has a lot of stress in it. It can be a job where it's easy to complain sometimes, even though I know we all love the job, but sometimes you can just be like, oh, they didn't get me the files today. The deadline's not moving. I'm so screwed. And you just kind of wallow a little bit sometimes. So I thought maybe we could use this episode to be like a whole nonstop episode of triumphs in the audio world just where a soundies just kick some ass yeah so, man. so that's our 50th episode and uh as part of it we got the great frank brie to donate suppressed weapons library to someone who submitted their story and we got the great guys at pro sound effects to uh donate their ambisonic sound library bundle which is chicago new york and tokyo all three cities and then they also donated a 50 download card from their online library we got some cool prizes, and I guess we'll announce who won which as we get to their stories. Does that make sense to you? That's awesome. Yeah. Dude, what, a, what a great little package there, man. That's cool. So in addition to people sending in their submissions, I also recently went to New York City to interview some people for the podcast, which will be another maybe many episodes. I'm not sure what I'm going to make of that, but uh, we'll tell you about that adventure in another episode. But I asked a few people while I was there to contribute as well. So uh, we got a couple stories from some pretty amazing people and in addition to our amazing listeners and what about our amazing listeners we got a submission from someone in japan australia a bunch of americans uh, i think there's a canadian in there we got all sorts of people so thank you so much listeners because you could have really made us look foolish if we sent this out <laughs> and got big crickets in response and then had to do a 50th episode that just did not reference it at all <laughs> so we really appreciate you guys uh putting your uh thoughts down on tape, even though tape doesn't really exist anymore, and uh, sending it to us because uh, I learned a lot from this and I think everybody else is. So do you want to roll into the first one? Let's do it. So yeah. the first guy is going to be Warren Hendricks. Yeah, Warren Hendricks is a sound designer in California. He's done uh, Deadpool, a couple of X-Men films, and uh, he's going to tell us a story about uh, X-Men Apocalypse. And uh, let's roll it. Excuse me, gentlemen, is there something that you would like to be sharing with the rest of the class? Can I please go to the bathroom? I think there's something seriously wrong with my eyes. Fine, Scott. And afterwards, why don't you stop by the principal's office and explain to him... For me, I really like moments when they really gel are my favorite. More recently, the moment in X-Men Apocalypse when Cyclops has his powers go off for the first time in the bathroom stall. That's one of my favorite moments of that film. A lot of credit goes to, to the filmmakers. Obviously, it wasn't my idea. They shot it that way, and it was built that way. But when you sit down and look at the scene and how it's played, you know, the big bully comes into the bathroom as, as Cyclops is sitting in the in the stall, rubbing his eyes, trying to figure out what the hell's going on, and he just starts giving him shit and pounding on the wall. Summers! I know you're in here. <laughs> That pounding just builds and builds and builds and gets so big and so big to really sort of emulate what Scott's feeling as he's sitting there trying to figure out what's going on with his eyes and this guy's threatening him outside. So that just that pounding and, and the way that it's cut is meant to represent his emotional build towards something. Obviously, to accomplish that, we had to build sound, and then whatever happened after that also had to just be huge and powerful and out of control and chaotic. 
And so the development of his first blast had to have those things in mind. Because otherwise, we wouldn't have been able to play the pounding so big. Wouldn't have been so effective to really get him the, the pounding of the bathroom stall if it wasn't large. But whatever came next had to be bigger, right? <laughs> The way that that whole scene is shaped, I think, really accomplishes what he's feeling and then him finally losing control and just the power of that sound as it just blows the door off and tears apart the bathroom. And he sits there with his eyes closed afterwards, shocked, still trying to figure out what's going on, sitting in the silence of, of you know, the destruction that he's just caused. And so scenes like that that come together to showcase what sounds can do to tell the story and, and to amplify what the characters are feeling, like those are my favorite. Yeah, that's way cool. What I really like about it is a lot of people tend to think that comic book movies, they're just smash them up, bang, not a lot of emotion going through, but like they really broke that scene down in order to get the emotion of that character through sound, which is really cool. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a tricky thing he was talking about, how they played the, the bangs so big and then they had to make the actual uh, Cyclops beam even bigger, bigger than that. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's always a tricky thing. I think something that they did that really was super effective there was the bangs were this big kind of um, earthy, foley type thing, and then the beam kind of went very laser. So even though it was a similar loudness, it was a very different texture, and so you felt it cut into something very different, which was which was super cool. And obviously the mixers um, did other things like totally back everything else away. The only thing you heard in that moment was the beam. Um, which, man, that thing had a really cool kind of body to it, too. That thing was yeah. that thing was bad. Yeah, cool moment. I, I can see why he likes it. So thanks, Warren. Uh, I just want to throw out a big shout-out really quickly. There's a new podcast called The Crawl by Radio Silence, and what they do on this podcast is each episode, they take someone from the filmmaking process and just really dive deep into what their job is. So they've done a makeup artist, a prop master, and I was not familiar with Warren Hendricks, but they did an episode on sound design, and he was their guest, and uh, I reached out to them to connect with Warren, and uh, that's how that worked out to get him on the show here today. So Warren, if you're listening, if you ever want to come on the show for a full episode, you just let us know, okay? But yeah. uh, <laughs> thanks to the guys at Re The Crawl by Radio Science, I highly recommend. If you guys like this show, you will definitely love their episode on sound design. And also, if you're into filmmaking at all, just listen to, they're only, I think, four episodes in so far, so, but they're all really good. They have a really good tone. It's conversational. So enough kissing their butts. <laughs> uh, now we're going to go to our next submission. We're going to kind of go to the opposite end of the spectrum now and go to the person who uh, submitted a story with probably the least amount of experience, someone who's just kind of getting into it. My name's Ben Brinton. I'm a Salt Lake City, Utah uh, recording artist, musician, and film sound guy. Uh, really enjoy the podcast. Thanks for organizing such a great feed. Plan on being a big, uh, long-time subscriber. Uh, I'm going to send you this story about my success, and maybe get, go into a little detail about what it's like being a sound guy in Salt Lake City, Utah. Just to give you a little background, uh, in Salt Lake City, there's a pretty thriving independent film scene. I know a lot of guys, actors directors, filmmakers, and we all kind of know each other or have heard of each other's names. So the, the, the scene exists and is thriving. Um, this one in particular is a TV series a friend of mine has been working on called Knickerbocker. He basically came to me showing me some clips, but he was fresh frustrated at the time because he had really just hit his max. I think he was focused on the project and, and then life was happening and, and a lot of things were just making it really difficult for him to complete the project because he couldn't really come to a conclusion of being happy with the project. And Anyhow, I think a large part of that was because uh, he was working with just the video, essentially. None of the sound was taken care of. There was no EQing. There was no leveling. There was no... Uh, it was still these really raw edits. So uh, he, he and I agreed that I, I'd take a stab at it and just see what kind of sound I could come up with. And back and forth, we progressively kind of worked little by little through you know, this, this episode. And then he uh, gave me a, a cockfight, basically a rooster fight going on in the background of a scene. 
So you don't see the chickens. You maybe see some feathers flutter, but you don't. Uh, you, there are no actual uh, chickens or roosters on the on the takes. So I had to create this really, I guess, detailed uh, rooster circumstance. It's a uh, cockfight, so it builds up to uh, basically one of the one of the roosters dying. Um, anyhow, it is a comedy. I'm trying not to be a downer here. <laughs> the soundscape was something I never really dove into before, but found myself just layer after layer getting more and more excited with all the different um, textures I could come up with. Uh, I even went and recorded an actual chicken to get you know unique, different, unrepeated. Uh, Bocking and rustles and such. Great see, yeah, I got you. You guys want a part of this? We want to make some money? We all want to make some money? We want to fight with some cocks. Let's do it. Which chicken do you want? Uh, either Petya or Lazarus. Mm, Petya. Lazarus is a good choice. You're probably going to lose, though, because he's, he's a bad fighter. <laughs> Petya! And, uh... Uh, anyway, after about maybe three days of uh, really going into the town and being really specific with choices and uh, really creating a, a gory texture to when the, the, the rooster gets slaughtered, um, just to heighten the comedy that's basically going on, sent it back to the director. Um, it's basically, uh, to his surprise, um, it was really everything he was hoping for. He just never really had the time to set into place and to... Uh, the time to hammer out those details and you know once he received that he basically said it really inspired him to finish the project it really um pushed him out of the funk that he was at as a director working so hard on a project for so long uh, so i felt really proud about that soundscape and that little uh, aspect that i could give to a fellow colleague to help with the bigger project and kind of move things along because i'm sure I'm sure it was a lot easier for him to edit stuff when, you know, audio, you know, the, the audio of it isn't you know, exhausting to him. Those sounds can not just be creative things in his mind. He's actually got something else he can add to and play with and level and take in and take out. It's always great to see projects move forward because in the Utah Salt Lake scene, there's a lot of independent stuff that gets started, but the follow-through is a little different. So anything that I can help to uh, get that follow through but that's just my story that's my win um i'm keeping up the good fight here in salt lake city utah again my name is ben if you want to check out my music it's benbrinton.com i'm a live musician on the weekends um and then i'll get tied up with some film uh projects um here and there uh, look me up online um it'd be cool to to uh, be in touch with people to check out your uh, podcast. Thank you again for the rad podcast and uh, plan on me being a long time listener. Cool. Nice work, Ben. Spending three days on a scene, if that's dedication on something. I, I have a hard time focusing for three days straight sometimes on one project. Yeah. I don't know if he meant he was cutting for three days because he said he went and recorded chickens. So maybe that was one of the days. Oh, that'll do but, it. Uh, and it sounded pretty cool. He played a little clip there. You know, and, and to be in Salt Lake City, I mean, there's just there's a lot of, of really good film stuff that goes on there. They have cool festivals going on there. So I can I can totally see people that are involved in audio just getting sucked into the film side of it in that particular town. It's got a real cool film culture over there. We should also mention that Ben is one of our winners. He won the 50 downloads card from Pro Sound Effects. So way to go, Ben. We will, uh, you get in touch with us or we'll get in touch with you and we'll make sure that you get that stuff. We got so many submissions here that we can't sit around and chat too much. So we're going to move on to uh, Ann Jones and we're going to play two in a row because these are not necessarily the same stories, but kind of similar morals of the story. So we'll start with Ann Jones. Hi, Tonebenders. I'm Ann Jones and I'm a radio producer and presenter from Australia. I actually run a program for the ABC, that's the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. It's called Off Track and it's about the Australian outdoors. Anything that happens in the outdoors could be motorbike riding, but lots of science um, and environmental stuff. Basically, it's all field recorded and I talk to lots of awesome people, get to see lots of awesome animals. It's a single producer program, so I do everything myself, including all the recording and the interviewing, all of the photos and the multimedia that goes along with the program, all of the editing. Um, I really enjoy it. 
There's some tight timelines, though, and there are challenging topics that have to be discussed in Australia, like our fly problem. So it's pretty warm here, right? And there's something we call the Australian salute, which is where you're waving your hand around in front of your face to get rid of the flies. It's a huge agricultural issue as well, because what happens is the fly basically pester animals and their condition goes down. So I was going to make a program about dung beetles. Turd eaters, essentially. They get rid of turds. Flies breed in turds. Uh, It isn't like a frog call or a bird call program. Dung beetles, how am I going to record these turd munches? So uh, the moment of truth, what do I do? I'm out in a paddock, so I've got a hydrophone. And I put it in a cow turd. This is my moment of glory. Well, it's not my moment of glory, but it's pretty cool anyway. This is what dung beetles actually sound like as they're moving around inside a cow pack. Another thing that I thought uh, could be great for this little natural history program was creating um, a contact mic situation where I could actually hear the dung beetles. So I got glad wrap, which is like a cling film, and I put it essentially over a a bowl that I had to make a drum. And then I found this dusty old contact mic that I dug out of the gear store here at the ABC that literally hadn't been used since the 1970s. And I essentially gaffered that to the plastic. And um, it was pretty cool. This is what you could hear. This is this is percussion dung beetle style. Anyway, I've recently also successfully recorded some Rufus Fantau copulation, but I haven't edited that episode yet. So here you go, the inside of a cow pat. Anyway, that's my funny if not glorious sound moments. So if you're keen to hear more, my name's Anne. The program is Off Track. I'm always keen to hear feedback about the sound because we have some awesome sounds here in Australia. It'd be good to hear what you think. Hi, this is Derek Espino. I'm a sound designer currently living in Tokyo. And you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Derek Espino. About 10 years ago, I was working as a freelance sound designer in Los Angeles, and I had a film come through that I was working on that needed a lot of ADR. It was a full-length feature, but it was an extremely low-budget film. At the time, I was working out of my bedroom, and um, certainly on a low-budget film, I wouldn't have any money to rent you know, a day at a studio or anything like that. So on this particular day, I had the ADR session in my room. Um, I called the director and a couple of the actors and invited them over. And what I did was is I you know, mocked up the room the best I could with some acoustic treatment, some blankets and things like that to kill some of the, the room noise, and got on the best we could. We came to a particular line in the movie where the actress was standing outside of a club and yelling for a taxi. The problem was that uh, in the shot, when they had shot it, they had her standing right next to a big fountain that was just mostly whitewater noise, you know, gushing. And so that line was completely toasted. It was gone. Um, We needed to reshoot it. The problem that I found was when we had her in the room, um, her projection that was needed for that shot would would have been so loud that you would have heard the fact that we were in a tiny bedroom in, you know, East LA. So I decided, well, let's have her stand out on the balcony and yell her lines out there. It seemed a little odd. I think the director maybe thought I was a little crazy, but I said, well, look, she can yell her lines. It'll sound like it's outside, which it is in the, in the shot. Uh, Sure, we're right next to the 101 freeway, but that doesn't matter. We can just cut out any low-end rumble that we might hear from the freeway. Uh, and any other noise will mostly get you know, covered up by the fountain that we're going to cut into the, into the scene. So we tried it. She went out there, yelled her lines out into the air, and um, it sounded amazing because it sounded real. She came back in. We put it all together, and I, I threw in some temp effects to um, sell the idea to the director And it totally worked, and he loved it. And that was a huge save, I think, uh, 
for that shot and it was done in a way that I was quite proud of, I guess. Um, I like to find ways of, you know, working with limitations coming from independent film. You tend to find ways of working around budgetary limitations and things like that. So I was, I was happy to see one of these on the spot solutions, you know, uh, actually work in a great way. Um, I can't take total credit though for that idea because I remembered that I had seen Gary Rydstrom give a talk with Dane Davis at the Egyptian Theater in 2004 in Los Angeles. And Gary was playing some of his raw recordings of animals that he had done for Jurassic Park. Hearing those recordings in their raw state was really an eye-opener because they were kind of noisy sounding to us. You know, they were kind of like, you know... uh, you would hear a swan call and then immediately you would hear waves lapping or other swans in the background or, you know, different noises happening, you know, all around, uh, in, in the back of the track. Um, and I, and I had remembered because I had seen Dane, uh, I had met Dane about a year after that and chatted with him and we both remarked on those recordings and Dane had remarked say, and he had said to me, uh, well, yeah, you know, it just goes to show you that if you know where your noise floor is going to be in a shot, you know, you can get away with a lot. You don't have to worry about that kind of noise. You can, nobody's going to hear it, you know. So it was, um, this film that I was working on was a good chance to sort of test out that theory. And it worked perfectly. I, I was very proud of it. And um, yeah, good old noisy LA. Anyways, that's my, uh, that's my story. So there you go. That is a beautiful story. So I've got two things here. First, Anne Jones, um, I want to talk to you because I'm utterly fascinated by the animals um, in your country. And (laughs) they're like all just like man-eating, blood-sucking, will-kill-you animals. Not the dung beetles, obviously, but... If you um, listen to her podcast off track, there's some good moments. I've listened to the last four or five episodes, but there's some great moments where she's trying to find a specific animal and rustling through the bush. And then she's like, and then later they told me this is where this six kinds of deadly snakes hang out or something. And she's like, yeah, should not have been in that bush at all. But the podcast is excellent. She she mentions that she does everything for it. It does not sound like a one man show or one woman show. Uh, She's kicking ass and taking names on that show. I can't believe that it's a one person show. Yeah. I mean, what a huge challenge. Um, and it's just recording animals is, is something that's very, very difficult to do well. Uh, and it's underappreciated with, with what you can get out of it. Uh, so that was my thought on, and I, I just love the concept of it. And, and I think it was cool what you did with the dung beetles, Derek. So the whole concept of cutting ADR outside, I've done something almost exactly the same. I was doing a big, big time spot for, I think it was either Nike or Under Armour, one of the, one of the sports companies. Um, and we, we cut a lot of ADR at Dallas Audio Post. We cut a lot of ADR. We have a really good sounding booth, so we weren't dealing with that type of challenge. But, um, you know, and I had the clients in LA on ISDN, and we were all loaded up. And uh, it was a very similar situation where the, the, the shot was outside, and the, you know, they wanted it to kind of be like it is. And it was almost a wild line. It was a very short line. And, uh, you know, we cut the line over and over and over again inside and they were like, cool, can you cut it outside? And I was like, I mean, yeah, I can. <laughs> Do you want me to cut it outside in the traffic? And they said, yes, cut it outside in the traffic. So I got the field recorder together. I went with the actor out into the, out into the parking lot. We cut the line three or four more times. We brought it back in, dumped the files, played the files down the ISDN line, and the outside files were the ones that they took. Yeah. Um, that's just, I mean, you don't always want, you don't want to cut ADR outside most of the time, but it's a, it's a true, true fact that noise floor is super overrated in a lot of situations. We have another winner in that pack, Derek Espino. Uh, and sorry if I'm mispronouncing people's names, by the way, I'm doing the best I can here. Uh, Derek Espino, who I believe is one of the monitors of the really great sound design Facebook page, which has like almost 9,000 people in it, I think. He's doing some good stuff for the scene, but he has won the Suppressed Weapons Library from Frank Bree. So, oh, nice. Yeah, that is uh, quite a score. I've got literally probably like 25 libraries from Frank and... I don't think I have a complaint about a single one of them. They're all amazing, top-notch, perfect libraries for what they are. He finds a niche, just goes to town, fills it up. 
Frank's the man. TheRecordist.com is where you find his stuff. Yes, please go to TheRecordist.com. Support the people who support us, if you will. And Frank, he was one of our guests on, uh, I don't know what episode number it was, but if you it go back early. in our archives, uh, it might be seven, actually. I don't know why I know that, but uh, we did a weapons recording roundtable, and Frank was one of the people who sat in on that and was super helpful and super knowledgeable. So support Frank. Let's move on. This is a double pack these are two people who I met in New York City. The first person you're going to hear from is named Abby Savage, and she works at a place called Dig It Audio. She is super amazing. She's done sound for Academy Award winning films and also super low budget indie films. And she's also an actress. She's one of the kind of secondary characters in Orange is the New Black. If anybody watches that, she plays Gina. And uh, she's got kind of an amazing story of how she splits her time between acting and doing high-level sound design. It's something I didn't really know was happening in the world. <laughs> um, and then we're going to follow that up with one from Bob Hine. Bob Hine works at Harbor Post in New York City, which is an amazing studio that I was lucky enough to go visit. And he's done like 20 years worth of Woody Allen films, a ton of Jim Jaramouche films, one of my favorite movies of all time, The Royal Tannenbaum. So he's been there, done that, and done it all. So uh, let's hear what they have to say. Again, we're going to start with Abby Savage and then roll into Bob Hine. Of course, when asked a question like this, you sort of go back in time from the most recent experience, and then it all sort of fades into oblivion after a certain amount of time. So a very recent thing that happened to me that was exceptional and memorable is that I just finished working with Punch Drunk. They're a theater company based in London that have done something called Sleep No More here, where they took over an old hotel and perform Macbeth. But, uh, and I'm supposed to roll around three times and spit in order to not have the bad luck for having said the, the Scottish play, but that's my acting self coming in. Um, Punch Drunk, they do all these different really cool theater productions. And they decided to do a VR experience with Samsung and it was going to be at the Samsung headquarters flagship down in Tribeca. I was the one brought in to do the sound design for this VR experience and it was half VR, half live. So there were actors in the room while you've got your VR headset on and they're actually touching you and moving your chair around and things like that. So the sound was static coming through speakers. Uh, rather than a conventional VR experience, which is on headphones. So I was given this sort of narrative structure of the story that's being told, and they were sort of describing the kind of sounds they wanted, but it's one of those things that was totally abstract. It wasn't like definitive, like, oh, then a person crosses the street and then a car goes by. It's like, no, 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 we want something low and ominous, and then we want it to stop, and then we want this thing to come rushing in, and that come. So I took, I guess it was about three or four days to create something. And none of the creators had heard of the experience had heard it. And I brought them in and I turned off the lights. I was like, let's get you know comfortable with this. And I played it for them. And the looks on their faces as they heard it, it was like elation. They were so thrilled. Like, and I had no idea, you never, it's that first time you sit down with the director, you have no idea whether you've hit it out of the park or completely fallen flat. You just don't know. And you have those like nerves. I get the nerves. After the eight minute thing was over and they heard just this rough cut, the main director, he stood up, he walked over and he gave me a hug. He was so excited. And I've certainly never had that experience before. And yeah, I mean, the, the pleasure of knocking something out of the park, especially on your first try and exciting people who have never actually worked in sound with sound before and like sort of opening their eyes to how cool things can be when the sound is really cool. That's deeply rewarding and will always be. Well, there's many, but I could mention with James Gray in Lost City of Z, it was extremely ambitious. It's incomprehensible what we were trying to do. It ran the gamut from quiet, endearing scenes between a husband and wife to mayhem of attacking Amazonian Indians in the jungle, which weren't played as reality, but were played as some kind of inner vision and James and I 
were working together like trains running down the track. I, we had a deadline. We had very little resources. And when we got into the mix, finding our way to what we loved was, it was great, but it was difficult. You know, we had a lot of challenges. We mixed till two or three in the morning. Last week or so, we mixed till two or three in the morning. James is similar to Jim Jarmusch. He jokes a lot. He laughs a lot. He makes fun of everybody in a really fun way. And we just enjoy his company so much. And we finished mixing that movie at 3.30 in the morning. And he got up and he came over to me and he said, it was an honor to work with you. And he wasn't joking. It was an honor to work with you. He turned around and he left. And I thought that was cool. <laughs> that was a good, a good reaction to what we'd yeah. just been through because we had just been through, you know, every, every challenge you can imagine. So that's my story. Yeah, he's talking about The Lost City of Z, which is a movie is isn't even out yet. I think it comes out in the spring. I started this whole thing with a blog post kind of saying about when I got a director to just stand up and give me a high five and how great that makes you feel. And that was kind of my story to get people to tell stories like this. And these two both are stories of just awesome client satisfaction and how it makes it all worth it kind of thing. You know, one of the treacherous things about this gig is that sound evokes an emotional response. Um, and so when things don't go well, people react emotionally. But the flip side of that is is truly, it really is beautiful when things do go really well. The sound people get an emotional response back that I think people in other departments aren't going to get because of how emotionally people react to what it is that we do. And so to hear those kind of stories, they're, they're familiar to me. I, I've got a couple of those myself, but it's, it's, uh, those are the kind of things that are worth more than money. Yeah. Those are the truly fulfilling, rewarding moments where you, you know that you are doing something really cool with your life as a human being. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's the human element that we sometimes forget about, you know, you're trying to battle deadlines and everything. And then you just get that simple hug or high five or a genuine thank you. And you're like, oh yeah, that's what this is actually about. Yeah, man. Awesome. Okay, so next up, we're going to hear from Jeremy Bloom. Hey guys, my name is Jeremy Bloom, and I'm calling to you from New York City. I'm a sound designer, and I work across the fields of theater, film, radio, and more recently some exhibit design. And the impossible thing that I'm trying to do right now is actually travel back in time. That's right. Trying to travel back in time. I'm working for the New York City Tenement Museum, which is a really awesome institution here in New York. And what they do is they own an apartment building in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and they do really extensive research on the families that really did live in that apartment building during different eras. And then what they'll do is they'll take that family's apartment and they'll renovate it back to the architectural conditions that it was in in that era, and they'll, they'll do an exhibit telling the story of that family that sort of serves as a proxy to tell the history of the Lower East Side and of uh, sort of um, the immigrant history of New York City as a whole. So I'm working with them on a new exhibit uh, that tells the story of the neighborhood from around 1950 to around 1980. Um, and it's the first time that they've included sound design in one of their exhibits. And the role of sound design in the exhibit is sort of to fill out the life beyond the immediate apartment that the exhibit takes place in and tell the story of all the life that happens around that apartment. And, you know, I'm trying to take a really careful research-based approach on this um, to be accurate to, I think, the, the really good work that they do in, um, in, in being highly, highly accurate to the stories that they're trying to tell. And... Um, you know, I think when you're trying to, to recreate um, a soundscape from an earlier era, uh, it's something that you can, you can do a lot of research and you can do really well, but there, there's always some level of subjectivity to it 
in that there, you're, it, there's always some element of imagination where I'm sort of doing all this research, but depending on my imagination to sort of fill out the details and imagine what it sounded like uh, in an era, quite honestly, uh, before I was born. Um, so it, it, I think it's, uh, it's possible to get really close to the truth, but I think it's totally, or I thought, it was totally impossible to be 100% accurate to the sound of this particular block in New York City uh, in, say, the 1970s. But I got super lucky, and I got connected with the archival department at New York City's public radio station, WNYC. It's actually the only public radio station in the country with a full audio archive. And uh, I got to see it. it's a really cool place, and there's all this magnetic tape around that's never been digitized. Uh, but that's really well cataloged. And I went through the catalog, and I actually managed to find a, uh, a soundscape, a field recording, um, that was recorded on the not only in New York City, not only in the Lower East Side itself, but actually on the very street where the exhibit takes place from 1976. And uh, I'm using that to create the soundscape that you'll hear when you're in that apartment, and you'll hear the actual street outside uh, in 1976, actually, as it really did sound. So that's super, super exciting to me, and it's something that I thought would be, you know, I thought I could get close, but I thought it was impossible to be perfect, but it's going to be perfect because it's a real recording that was taken during that era. And the second part of it that I'm super excited about is that um, to deliver the soundscape, actually what we're going to do is we're going to mount transducers to the window of the apartment. So the museum goers will, will actually hear the soundscape truly coming through the window because the transducer will resonate the window and the window will act as a speaker playing back the sounds of the street behind it in 1976. So that is, uh, that's what I'm up to. And thanks so much for your great podcast. Keep up the good work and uh, take it easy. Thanks. Jeremy buried the lead there, man. Yeah, the transducer. Come on, tell us more. Tell us that more. Is, that's the bomb. <laughs> I'm excited about that. Yeah, I want to go see that really bad. Have you ever heard anything using a window as a speaker like that? There's a thing called the bass egg. I swear to you, this is this is probably almost exactly what he's using. It's it's a little transducer. It's it's not a contact mic. It's a straight up speaker like if it's but it's it's meant to be placed on an object and it turns the object that it's touching into a full-on speaker one of my co-workers has one and we've been playing around with it quite a bit yeah man there's some cool stuff that can be done with that kind of thing um that's way cool i'm excited about that so jeremy stay in touch let us know once you've actually got this up and running how well it works because we want to hear about this the other thought I kind of had in my head as Jeremy was telling a story was, you know, how to approach soundscapes that you are personally unfamiliar with because, you know, due to time or distance. To some degree, I feel like it's really, really important as, as artists and as sound designers to get out and travel and go experience different parts of the world and go experience things that may evoke a soundscape that you are at least unfamiliar with. You know... It's really, really cool that, you know, he's dealing with an archival situation and he's, he's shooting for accurate representation. But in a lot of cases, your audience is not going to know the difference between accurate or inaccurate. Yeah. Um, what, what you're trying to do is do something that is uh, effective, I guess. That's painting the artistic picture you're trying to paint. You know, in Jeremy's situation, he did, what, he did the right thing. He did what he had to do. But in, in other situations, some, you know, I think it's important to have a baseline fundamental um, breadth of experience of what the world sounds like in different situations that you can use, that you can call for your own experience up and just try and, you know, dream up new things that might sound one way or the other, but are at least your interpretation of what it is that you're looking for, even if you never got the chance to personally experience whatever it is that you're trying to recreate. Yeah, I found that world travel for me has changed a lot of my outlook on sound design for sure. Okay, so let's move on to our next pack here. Michael O'Connor, take it away. Hey, everybody. This is Michael O'Connor. Um, before I dive into this segment, I just want to give you a quick idea of who I am. I mainly handle the post-production sound for projects ranging from web commercials all the way up to feature films, and uh, I've been doing post-production audio for about seven years now. 
So with that in mind, today I wanted to talk to you about a film I worked on called Almost Home. It was a 12-minute film, short film, directed by B.J. Golnick. It's still in the festival circuit right now, and it's picked up a couple awards along the way. Anyways, what was hard about this project? For me, I'm very optimistic, sound person. I, I don't think anything's impossible, but some things are incredibly difficult to either figure out or find the answer to. And at the heart of the project is a battle sequence that lasts about a minute and a half. And it's a modern warfare sequence, takes place in Afghanistan. And I had not really handled any complex gun battle sequences before this film. So it was definitely a new challenge for me. For this mix, the director had referenced the film Lone Survivor. And listening to that film, it really felt very realistic to me. It wasn't super over the top. And so I wanted to go with that approach on my first pass. Um, I should also mention that, like many projects of this nature, it's a short film, it was a passion project, there wasn't a huge budget, so I was really trying to work with just the sounds in my existing libraries at the time, and I kind of told myself that I wasn't going to spend a bunch of money on fancy gun sound effects for this, and just kind of work with what I had. So I want to play for you this battle sequence. Uh, this was my first pass at it. I really thought I did a good job making this sound like a battle between two Americans and five or six Afghan soldiers uh, at the time. And then I will show you afterwards uh, where this mix ended up. So here's a quick clip of basically my first pass without hearing any of the director's notes. Get up! Get on your feet! Okay, so as you can hear, very minimal kind of uh, approach there. Um, I had even gone out and recorded a bunch of bullet whizzes, um, not with actual guns, but just um, in my living room with a slingshot and various objects. I uh, spent a lot of time working with the sound effects that I had in my library and just basically giving them distance by using altiverb and EQ. And I thought it was in a pretty good place for this small kind of battle. I sent it to my director and then he gives me a call and he tells me, look, Mike, uh, the film sounds great, but uh, that battle sequence, it, it sounds flat. And I kind of you know, was in a little bit of denial there. And I thought like, oh, well, it sounds pretty good to me. But then I, you know, I gave it another listen and realized, no, he's he's totally right. This sounds extremely flat. What what had really happened was I was trying to save money and and not really buy any more sound effects. And I was just using the same 10 sound effects or so available to me in my own library that existed. And it, it just sounded repetitive and flat, and I totally understood what he meant. And so I told him, okay, like, give me another shot. And he said, yeah, and watch the beginning sequence of Saving Private Ryan to give you a better idea as to what I want. And that, to me, kind of threw me off because I thought he initially wanted this small sequence, uh, or rather a small battle. And he, and he explained to me, no, 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 I know we only see about seven or eight people on the screen in total, but I want there to be a lot more engagement going on around them. And this was just one of those things that didn't get communicated to me early on in the process. So that was news to me. So I thought, oh, okay, yeah, no, knowing that there's more soldiers around us, great. I'll, I'll take that and run with it. And giving Saving Private Ryan's opening sequence a listen, I was dissecting it and thinking like, what is really making this pop? And I realized it was um, on top of great gun recordings, there were amazing bullet whiz-bys. And I thought, ah, that's that's what I'm totally missing. I don't really have any good bullet whizzes. So I scoured the internet and I came across Frank Bry, who is known as the recordist, and uh, came across his Bullets 2 library and started to drool because those recordings just sounded so good. And I know I had initially told myself, no, I'm not going to spend any extra money on this project than I should be. 
But then I thought, oh, you know, I could use these sound effects for many, many projects to come in the future. So I made the purchase and I can tell you it was completely worth it. And I have been using those bullet buys ever since. I then went on the search for gun sound effects and I came across the free firearm sound effects library, which was created by Still North Media. And you could go ahead, go online, actually go to Airborne Sound because those guys went through the library and remastered the sound effects, and they also enhanced the metadata, which is really sweet. Then from there, I basically started from scratch, got rid of most of the work I had already done on that battle sequence, and went to town on cutting in new gun sound effects and new bullet whizzes. And then let me play you a segment from that newer mix. Get up! Get on your feet! We gotta go! Down! Come on! You alright? Fuck! Yeah! So, there you go. There's the uh, final sequence of that battle, uh, just a portion of it. And what I learned from this project was really to make sure to take a step back after I've done my work and really be more critical about my work in general. And even if I've spent a whole lot of time on something, still try to give it fresh ears and think, is this to the standards that I want? And if not, try something new. It really matters so much to have good ingredients for your mix. I mean, before I really had the most basic of ingredients and it was a very bland tasting recipe and then getting all these other ingredients in, uh, I think it really made this turn into a very tasty project, so to speak. Hi, this is Jeff Schiffman, co-owner of Boombox Post, an animation sound design studio. Here at Boombox, my partner Kate Finan and I have worked hard to build an environment that celebrates creativity, no matter what the challenge. Here's one of those stories. I've worked with my friend Chris Savino for almost the entire span of my career as a sound editor. He was executive producer on Johnny Test, the first show I supervised. Chris put his trust in me to create a great soundtrack for his show back then, and when Boombox Post was in its infancy, literally only a few months old, he once again decided to bring work my way. This time, however, the stakes were even higher. It was his first original show, and we were a brand new company. The Loud House, a TV series for Nickelodeon, is an anomaly. A comic strip come to life, it has an incredibly unique style hearkening back to some very classic animation, while at the same time feeling totally fresh and modern. When I first saw these characters beautifully animated over rich, textured backgrounds, I was kind of floored. It brought me back to a young Jeff reading the Sunday comic strip section of the newspaper and watching peanut specials on TV. So therein lied the challenge. Chris and his team pulled off this visual magic trick, but how was I going to strike the same balance with the sound design? How do you create nostalgia? I knew I needed to create a sound for the show. We call this establishing. I've done this on dozens of series and it's always a challenge, but this one was different. There aren't any weapons to record, alien worlds to build, or vocals to process. It's just a simple family comedy about a boy and his ten sisters. In any other cases, the jokes would be punched up with the usual like old standbys from the Hanna-Barbera and Warner Brothers sound effects libraries. Ah, but there was the spark. I have to admit that over time, I've become a bit exhausted by the same exact handful of sound effects used endlessly in animation. The violin plucks, boings, zips, and ricochets. By no means is this a judgment. These sounds have worked their way into the very fabric of animation for a reason. But to be honest, it's just fatigue. We're creative people. We want to create, not simply cut and paste. But generation to generation, these sounds have worked. From Bugs Bunny through SpongeBob, kids innately know that a coconut makes for a silly punch sound, or slide whistles make for funny fast entrances and exits. There's got to be a way to add to that language while celebrating it. I wonder what would happen if I tried to create an entirely new set of comedic sounds, each which would evoke those same reactions. 
The studio looked like a musical mad scientist lab. I'd scoured my garage, my music studio, my kitchen, even kids' toys I had lying around for anything I thought would make an interesting and funny sound. There piled on the floor were penny whistles, bottles, kazoos, rubber bands, a banjo, a ukulele. You name it, it was probably lying somewhere in that mess. The crown jewel of the collection was my grandfather's boyhood violin from the 1920s. I discovered it only months before in my grandmother's basement in Detroit, and I asked if I could take it back to L.A. to have it fixed up. Well, that was an easy enough place to start. Turns out a junked up old violin can make some really interesting sounds if you tweak and bend and mess around with it enough. In fact, that day after hours of recording, I discovered all kinds of weird ways to make crazy cartoons sound. Water drips can make a great eye-opening sound. Unspooling duct tape makes for great musical-sounding rubber stretches. Corks in a bottle make not only great pop sounds if you pull them out quickly, but it also makes this great squeak if you twist it. Although the recording was a blast, the real work began when I brought everything into Pro Tools. The sounds were great, and a few of them stood out entirely on their own with just some simple pitch and time manipulation. But a lot of these classic sounds I wanted to evoke were enigmas. How do you build a volup or a bork? These are sounds I used all the time, and I knew that I would need the equivalent when I'm cutting the Loud House. I started by layering sounds, mangling and mashing them together, EQing, compressing, modulating, messing with ukulele and banjo recordings until they were unrecognizable as a ukulele or a banjo. Pretty much anything I could do to evoke a feeling from these recordings. Surprisingly, it worked. I came out of those sessions with a rich library of brand new cartoon sound effects. Some of my favorite being the new violin plucks, the bork and volup. I even invented some new ones like the trumpet point and the cheek wobble. These collections of sounds became the sonic backbone of the Loud House, currently one of the most popular animated series on television. I'm very proud to be a part of this show, but more importantly, when the order of the day was evoking a feeling of nostalgia, I'm proud that I took the time to create something new. You can find me on Twitter at SoundsLikeJeff, and sign up for our newsletter at boomboxpost.com blog where you can learn about all our crazy sound design adventures here at Boombox Post. I'm digging it. That was, uh, now I'm inspired. Now I need to go record some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I work commonly with a lot of those, those type of things. I don't do animated series all day, every day, but I definitely have a few under my belt, and clearly you do too. Yeah. I know exactly the sounds they're talking about. I know exactly what libraries they're sitting oh, in. Oh, yeah, know we exactly all how to get to, you know. And uh, man, how cool is it to hear the new stuff that he made? I'm just, I'm so psyched. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm pissed off at myself now because I work on a show that uses those sounds and now I'm a lazy jackass. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Jeff. <laughs> you know, you got to be the change you want to see yeah, in the yeah, world. Yeah, yeah, um, <laughs> So yeah, th that was a great story, and it's uh, a kick in the pants to everybody out there. Let's get out there and record new material whenever we can. And then also Michael O'Connor and his submission about the gun battle. That was pretty awesome, the change between the two. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny how every gun battle ever referenced now goes right back to the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan. I love the way he um, introduces it as, I didn't want to spend any money, it's a low-budget film, he just wants me to make it sound like the greatest sound moment ever in film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how people have those types of expectations um, <laughs> they put on things. I thought he did a really nice job, and I utterly agree with the sense that so much of this is ingredient based cooking and to some degree it's you know you don't have to go out and buy libraries in order to do good work sometimes that is the right move and that's what you got to do sometimes recording new stuff is the right move and that's what you got to do but um, the it's true that the fundamental mindset is ingredient based cooking because if you have really really beautiful sounds whether you bought them whether you recorded them however you acquired you know I trade for sounds like you know, vociferously, I'm always trying to trade for sounds. However you can get your hands on sounds. Um, what we are is we are taste curators. And, you know, our clients don't care where we got our sounds from. They care what they sound like. And, uh, and, and so, you know, when you have really, really beautiful starting stuff, you don't have to do a lot. You just have to place them and, and they're in good shape. Um, you know, I, I, I will say, though, that, you know, that opening scene from Saving Private Ryan is also... It's not only is it masterfully cut, it's impeccably mixed. And, you know, mixing stuff is hard. It's a dark art. 
<laughs> you know, two different mixers can take a stack of sounds and do two totally different things with them. For anyone to do something competent is just, it's difficult. And so that needs to, that can't be overstated how, how important mixing is, especially in the most challenging genre of sound cutting ever, which is gun battles. Another thing that they talked about in Michael O'Connor's submission, he didn't have an ego about it. He made the scene the way he thought it should go, sent it to the director. The director came back and said, no, that's not what I want. And instead of going, screw you, that's like, that, I put my heart and soul in that. He was like, okay, let's listen to the director. I'll reevaluate this and go back into it. And like, that's something that I think takes experience unto itself. Because when you're first starting out, Sometimes you don't have that uh, distance to your work. You're so invested in it that you can't take criticism from it. So when you do take that criticism, and it's normally right even when we don't want it to be, you know? Yeah. And no matter, no matter how much you don't want the director's opinion to be right, that doesn't mean that it's not right. So like just the way he handled that maturely, it was like, okay, I got new information now. I'm going to go back in. I'm going to tackle this with uh, some more ingredients and kick ass with it. And I thought that was a really uh, excellent way to take that perspective on it instead of just getting defensive. Yeah, that story had shades of our imposter syndrome episode in it. Um, yeah. It was very, uh, very maturely handled. Nice work. Okay, and one other thing quickly. Michael O'Connor is really active on our Facebook page for the podcast. And that guy chirped my Canadian accent, Okay. And that is going over the line. I can't believe he did that, eh? I go out in the world. No, I can't even do an exaggerated Canadian accent. It's, it. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he chirped my accent. It was all in good fun, though. I'm totally teasing him right now. But uh, in my head, I'm like, oh, chirp my accent. There's no way you're winning any prizes, buddy. And then I reach into the hat and pull out his name, and he wins the Ambisonic bundle from Pro Sound Effects. So oh. even though he chirped me, he still wins a prize. It hurts. It hurts. <laughs> now you know he did it legit yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah he, we definitely didn't rig this he won fair and square damn it um <laughs> so we wanted to send out a quick thanks to pro sound effects for donating the two prizes uh pro sound effects i don't know if you've heard it's been all over twitter and such but they just released a new edition of their most popular general library the hybrid library and this is the 2017 version it's available exclusively to freelancers and you can get it right now for 1495 american dollars and that's only available till december 31st that's 60 percent off the regular price of four grand it's designed to be a go-to source for creative fuel to help finish projects faster and produce better sound. It offers 63,000 sound effects in 293 categories. That's 345 gig of sound, and you can get it all on a one terabyte hard drive. And it includes rich metadata, pinpoint search. You actually get a free copy of Basehead with it, with I think a one-year subscription. If you go to their website right now, prosoundeffects.com slash hybrid, and apply to be in their... Uh, freelancer program you, you're not making any commitment to buy but if you do that just use the partner code toadbenders so they know that we sent you there and uh check it out because i actually have the hybrid library and it's something that really helps me i've loved it i've had it for years and the ambisonics bundle just on a quick note when i was in new york city i'm gonna just keep bringing that up to you renee when i was in new york city <laughs> i'm just so jealous <laughs> i actually had dinner with david forshee the guy who recorded the new york leg of the ambisonics bundle that uh the scoundrel accent making fun of Michael O'Connor just won. <laughs> so uh, it's a good library and he put a lot of work into it. So uh, congratulations, Michael O'Connor, you accent making fun of son of a gun. Are we allowed to swear? Someone said the F word in one of their submissions. I think that was probably Michael O'Connor, that foul mouthed son of a bitch. I, I think I've cursed before. Actually, I'm positive I have. Yeah, we actually got an email from a listener once telling us not to uh, swear. It offended their sensibilities. So, oops. Uh, well, I just did it again. Anyway, I seriously, uh, Michael O'Connor, I'm just teasing you because you tease me. So this is all in good fun. I don't actually have any ill will towards you, obviously. That's what happens when you cheer for Canadian, yeah. man. They let it, they let it go. <laughs> Um, our last uh, clip we're going to play is from Tom oh, Fleischman, yeah. multi-Oscar nominated, uh, won the Oscar for mixing for Hugo, worked on a bazillion Scorsese films. The man is a legend. Mixed Silence of the Lambs, another classic. And I sat down and we talked with him 
And he would say things like, yeah, and that year I was working on a little film called Serpico and like just drop these things like that. You're like, oh, one of the greatest films ever made. Okay. (laughs) Um, This was a crazy moment because we asked him this question and he got super emotional about it. So let's listen to it and just hear, like listen to his voice because he actually broke down a little bit. So here we go. The thing that really makes me happiest here in the studio is when I have my hands on the faders and it's almost like a Ouija board. It's like I'm not thinking about anything. I'm not thinking about the meters. I'm not thinking about the gear. I'm just listening and letting my hands do what they do. Uh, And, you know, it's sort of a connection between my hands and my ears and my brain and, and the story. And when that happens... And it usually happens to me with music, mostly. Uh, sometimes with sound effects, too. But I think mostly with music, I'll just, you know, I'll be mixing a music cue in, and the scene is really working like gangbusters, and everything is perfect. And that feeling that I get when that happens is absolutely just the most wonderful thing. It, I go home, and I think about it, and I thought, wow, you know, that's just, that came out so good. Um, and it just makes me feel good to know that there's that sort of unconsciousness, spontaneous thing that happens creatively where your ears and your brain and your hands all connect to make something beautiful. That's about as best I can put it. Uh, it's very moving to me. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. That's why he's one of the best. You have to have a certain amount of empathy um, as a human to do this kind of stuff and to do it well. And, and clearly he does. It's, it's, I've, I can identify with that for sure, too. I definitely have had those moments. I had one yesterday. Wow, really? <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was dumb. It was for a Mary Kay video. But yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> it was like the music hit and I just, you know, and I pushed it up and it was like, I was, you know, like, I, I don't like to admit it, but I, I totally, I, I choke up on those kind of things sometimes. Wow. I had a, the exact opposite experience this week. <laughs> <laughs> I had a really bad cold and my ears were plugged up and I had to go in and mix the show having no idea what I was doing because I couldn't trust my ears in any way. So then I came back in the next morning to screen it and my ears had uh, clean, cleared up so I could hear and like I hit play and like right away, I'm just like, oh no. <laughs> oh God, what have I done? <laughs> yeah, and I just kind of look at the director and he's looking at me like, what's going on here? And he, <laughs> he knew that I was ill the day before. So it was all, it all worked out and we took the time to make it right. But it was definitely the exact opposite moment where my fingers were on the faders going, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, to, to get back to where, where Tom Flash yeah, exactly, was at, I feel sure. like... I feel like I really can, you know, I'm, you know, nobody's on that level. Right. But I, I feel like I can see where he's coming from with that. And I totally have had those moments where, yeah, something happens. And it, and so much of it is the, the enormity of it comes to you where it's like, you know, somebody sat and wrote this and a whole crew went out and shot it. Mm-hmm. And here it is in front of us, you know, and all the stuff that took that just happened pre-production and production. And now here it is in front of me. And, you know, this this amazing composer wrote this part of this piece. And here I am with that man's work under my finger and pushing it up to right just the right spot, like right here. And it just ah, and it's just like, oh, it's right there. And it's, you can't describe it. There's not words for it. There's just uh, there's an emotion that a few of us in this world are fortunate to experience when we have that, you know, I'll, I will, I'm, I'm rambling because it's, I'm, I'm not finding words for it. The first time I got on stage with my guitar in front of a whole bunch of people and hit certain notes and you just move a whole crowd um, with what it is that, with the, with music that you wrote, that, that they're there to see you play. It's a similar feeling, even though you're in a room by yourself sometimes or with just a couple other people you know that that's a moment that is connecting because it connects to me. It's going to connect to other people. And um, I, I completely understand how stuff like that can affect um, people emotionally in the moment. I get it. It's cool. It yeah. makes me happy. 
I think that's an awesome note to wrap it up on. How much more positive does it get than that? There you go. Yeah. So I want to thank everybody who participated in this, everyone who retreated and uh, shared on Facebook so that we could get the message out that we were doing this. I think it was a rousing success, and maybe we'll try it again for the 100th episode. What do you think? Yeah, how amazing is this group of listeners? I mean, I talk about the the group of people that listen to this podcast um, constantly. It's it, it has really it's opened me up to so many things. It's, it's opened up so many lines of communication and, and it's opened up so many um, different conversations with people that I would have never had the opportunity to speak to. Otherwise I'm, I'm thoroughly grateful to everyone that listens to this. The tone vendors has kind of changed my life in a way that I never expected it to do. So uh, thank you to everyone who listens and gives us a reason to keep putting it out. And uh do you think we'll make it to 100? Jesus, it, took, it takes a lot of energy, eh? Good <laughs> we'll Lord. get there. Yeah, but we'll hopefully happen. we get to 52. Let's not worry about 100. Um, Pretty soon we'll be able to enlist our kids in editing this yeah. stuff, so it'll be all good. <laughs> okay, so thank you very much, everybody, and uh, we'll get back to you soon. Thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show, and especially to everyone who participated in this show. You can follow the show at the Tone Benders. Go to ToneBendersPodcast.com to leave a comment. You can support the podcast by shopping at ToneBendersPodcast.com slash Amazon or ToneBendersPodcast.com slash BH. Thanks, guys. We'll see you all next time. See ya. Thanks for listening to Tone Benders. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonevendorspodcast.com.